0: Welcome to Things That Will Help with Buffy Barfoot. This podcast explores what it's like to be human and how to find tools to feel clear, grounded, and happier. Each episode will have a different theme, and we'll talk about things that help to bring that theme to real life. The human stories ahead do not negate the hard or the dark, but rather point to the lighthouses along the way. This is Buffy devoted this entire episode to the stories that we tell and the stories that are given to us by our family of origin and the right that we have to tell them differently as we build our lives and heal onward. And I want to start with a story about my dad, Um, and he told me this years ago, probably when I was about 12 or so. And Dad was always incredibly intentional about how he told stories. And, and his southern cadence was was kind of like warm honey. And I, I miss his voice and, and the way that he spun stories more than I miss almost anything. Um, but they they definitely live in my head and my heart as like little smooth little treasures that I can pull out and revisit regularly. So when my dad was about 10, um, he remembered being at his grandmother's house in rural Mississippi, um, should a country house kind of out um, in the middle in the middle of nowhere. and And he was there with his his uncle Willie, his uncle Tyson, his uncle Percy, and my papa, which was his daddy. And they'd all just eaten supper at the table together and it was time to clean up and, and, and time to wind down for the evening. And the men started talking about the politics and the state of the world and, and kind of the important things going on around town, um, the things that felt and sounded really important. And, um, my dad was sort of half listening to them talk, but he, he jumped up and, and helped um, or started to help his grandmother clear the dishes and um, take everything to the sink. and and he remembered standing next to her at the sink, kind of looking for her to to give him direction to do the next thing and and she wiped her hands on her apron and she knelt down and and looked at him square in the face. And um, he told me he would never forget at that point what she Said, she said, "Jimmy, go sit down with the men. That's where you belong. This is what I do." And he said that he sensed that she was really comfortable with that, um, that conclusion and that role, and that she was really just mothering him to his place uh, to be with the men, where he belonged. And dad told me, he said, even at that young of an age, and he was probably also about 10 or 12, um, my age, when he told me the story, he told me that he was he was super bothered by it and that he knew that something felt really off and really wrong to him. And, um, and he looked at me intently. I still remember this so clearly he looked at me intently and said, this story doesn't carry forward in our family. You belong, Buffy, you belong in the discussions after supper too. And the politics and the philosophy and the intellect is every bit as, um, as much you're right as it is any boy or man. And at the time, I, I didn't realize um, how important this was, what he was doing. I didn't understand um, what a marker this was for me, but he was consciously shifting legacy in our family and he was consciously making a new story for me um, who would one day really think about this and take this to heart and that it would, it would help to shape my entire, my entire life and my um, feelings of empowerment and where I belonged. I don't think I ever thanked him specifically or properly for this moment in my childhood, but I think it's one of the most profound as I look back. The last time that I saw my dad um, before his fatal stroke, we were walking the beach together and we talked a lot about life and loss and, and we shared a special, a special week together in November. And we walked close to the shore, and I remember our footprints. And I like when the undertow is strong and it pulls the water back over clean sand um, because a fresh footprint in sand feels like a brand-new start. And I always think of this metaphor when I walk on the beach now, and it's, it's one of my favorite places on earth. Um, I think because I'm always looking to remind myself that we can begin again and that we can make our stories our own, and that we can move our legacy in a conscious direction of our choice. We are at a new place right now in history uh, that's never been before. This this pandemic has created, has created a new space, along with, of course, all the fear and the hardships and the sickness that was birthed out of this time. That is being birthed out of this time. Something else is too, and that's that's a new beginning, a clean slate, and a time a time for the planet to do a bit of healing and not suffer the abuse that she's been battered with uh, in recent years. And and all of us too um, are getting a required time to slow down and to really see each other, whether we like it or not, and to see ourselves maybe maybe even for the first time with true clarity and it's almost like i've been thinking of it lately as almost like a new generation that's pushed up through the cracks and that we have a brand new chance to create an entirely different story on the other side of this when we come outside of our homes an individual one of course and then a collective one and i encourage you to notice your language and notice how you speak about yourself and your situation and notice if it's rooted in fear or despair rather than support and hope. And I, I really want to be clear here about something. I think that Pollyanna language or language that bypasses the reality of how hard things can be or or feel is not helpful and it can even be destructive. But if we can allow the grief of the darker times like this to be felt and then eventually turn our language and our story towards something hopeful, then I think that is really good. And the stories that we stick with and the ones that we that we tell can become ones of hope and and even resurrection. So, so many of us have body stories, ones that we have, um, that we have birthed ourselves, that we have generated ourselves and ones that, um, that we have that have been branded onto us by our family of origin or, or by pop culture, by, um, personal expectations of the way that we should look that keep us in these really small and unrealistic cages, And my mom has a branding story, one that kept her hostage for most of her life that I want to share with you that was pivotal in her life and pivotal in in me watching her life too. When mom was 14, she was in the dressing room with Mama, who was her mother, in Mobile, Alabama. And they were school shopping, like new clothes, school shopping for the fall. And um, Mama looked at her and said, Well, Vivian, you'd have a cute figure if your thighs weren't so big. <laughs> and uh, can you imagine hearing that at, at 14? Um, and so, of course, I think it was such a tender age for my mom and for all of us at that age. And, and it, it just, it branded her. Um, it stuck with her. And she believed it. And she moved forward with that belief and kind of um, t- catered all of her assumptions about herself and her body in that frame um, forever after that. And, you know, poor Mama, I, I, don't, I don't think that she felt really all that good about herself. And, and I know it probably would have destroyed her if she had known how many years the story had stuck Onto my mother and onto her body, but my mom carried it for years, and um, and then something really important happened when my mom was in her in her late fifties, early sixties with me. First of all, I didn't know this story about her and Memo in the dressing room until this particular day. We were in Chicago. I lived in Chicago at the time, and we were in Marshall Fields. Um, shopping for clothes and she was visiting me in Chicago from Montgomery, Alabama. and we were in the dressing room. And we each had gotten kind of a bundle, an armload of clothes to try on and we were in one of the bigger bigger dressing rooms so that we could try on clothes together. And one of the items that she'd collected to try on were, were these white linen pants that were really um, really elegant. And she tried them on and, and they looked great. And I said, Oh, mom, those are cute. You should get those. And she looked at me kind of puzzled. And she said, Well, I probably shouldn't get white pants, you know, because of my thighs. And I was like, What? No, what do you mean? Because of your thighs? I don't know what you're talking about. And then she went on to tell me this story in detail um, about what she was told when she was 14. And I was shocked. I said, Well, mom, that isn't true. Like that isn't even a, a a realistic or valid thing. And it sounds like that you've just carried something all these years in your body and in your mind because it was what you were told and you just kind of decided to believe it. And I'm wondering if, if, you know, I could help you just drop that today. And I think she must've been really ready for that because she looked at me and she was like, yeah, I, I can drop that. And I almost felt like she just needed the witness and she needed the permission to let it go and to kind of um, peel the branding off of her body and move forward in a way that was really hopeful and positive and conscious. And so she did, and she bought the pants. And um, and they still hang in her closet. And I, I just love that, moving that legacy um, of positivity forward, and not taking uh, taking the belief system that somebody had given her anymore. And she, even though she carried it in her body for years afterwards, as an adult and as a young mother, my mom made a decision not to carry this branding forward to me. I grew up being celebrated for my body, and. However, it changed and, and fluctuated, and however I thought about how I looked, um, my parents were really conscious about celebrating that and making me feel comfortable in my skin. And, and I definitely had times where I was hard on myself, but I was free of anything that she put on me. And that story, its story ended with her. and she eventually was able to debrand herself too, and now we both have a story of our own that is positive and, and body kind. And I think that, um, on the other side of that, that Mama would be really proud of that and, and would be proud of how that moved forward in our family, because I definitely think it was something that she didn't realize that she was contributing to. And she probably needed somewhere in her timeline, you know, needed somebody to do the same for her, but, but never had that Thank goodness that we have opportunity to grow and evolve and learn and be taught along the way. Um, And speaking of that, I want to share a little something that happened very recently, like two days ago. Um, I made a post about my baby, Coretta, who's three and a half months old. I made a post about her having sleep regression. Um, around four months, a lot of babies do. And, um, and I'm really tired right now. And um, just kind of made a post about this coffee cup, that I was having coffee in the shower, and I was hiding from my four year old. And I um, it was sort of funny, but it was also pretty real and serious, um, because of how exhausted I am. And so many people responded and commented with sympathy and with oh girl I know and I've been there and it's really hard and blah 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 and um, it kind of felt good to have that mama support coming in and then one woman who um, is a lactation consultant who's been a student of mine for a very long time responded to me sympathetically and sweetly but also with kind of a gentle scolding And a a scolding of my language. And she pointed me towards new language um, and to say, instead of sleep regression, she pointed me towards saying that my baby is having sleep progression. And that right now, Coretta's brain is doing miraculous things and that she's actually making wild progress in her development and that's partly why babies kind of get disrupted in their sleep in their four-month range because they're doing so much changing neurologically and and that in fact it's it's a really positive sign and because this woman has been my student for a long time she's heard me talk about how important I think language is in the telling of our story. And so I, I really appreciated this scolding, um, because I, I'll always need help in practicing this and having reflection from people and people teaching me along the way and pointing out like, Hey, look at it this way and continuing to see how the stories I tell can support a life of wellness while still being really real. Um, the reality is I am exhausted, but it was helpful to focus on my baby's growth and the positive backing to why she's not sleeping. And that is amazing what her little brain is doing rather than just focusing on how exhausted I am and it feeling like a regression. So this little language correction um, really helped me. And I just wanted to share that a good thing to start to look at in terms of the way that you tell your stories is do the stories that you tell make you feel broken or do they make you feel whole do they support your growth or do they keep you tethered to the old way and the way that the things have always been and the archaic model and did you know do you really know really know that you can rewrite them, that you can rewrite your stories, and that you get to be the author. My friend Katrina, who I went to graduate school with for dance in Illinois, and I was also roommates with her. She was a really special human um, that, I, that I had the privilege of spending three years with during that time period. Um, and Katrina, our third year of graduate school, the summer before our third year, she uh, began to study Feldenkrais, which is a type of somatic, subtle somatic work. And she'd been away all summer, kind of steeped in this special work. And Katrina already had a wisdom and an understanding of the body in a way that that always made me kind of stay in awe of her. And I think she was one of the first people to alert me to the language that we put on our bodies and the injuries and the history of ourselves and the labels of good and bad and how that could be organized. And we, I had just um, reunited with her, and it was the first week of classes for our third year, and we were taking a, a dance kinesiology class together. And we were asked on the first day to trace a life-size outline of ourselves, of our bodies on big paper, big white paper. And, and then we were to go to, um, to the corners of the room kind of by ourselves and color on these life-size tracings where we had physical problems, injuries, or pain. And so without giving any thought... Um, or critique to that assignment I went and I started coloring and I had a lot of problem areas I had um, issues with my ankles some arthritis there and some problems in my knees and um, even in my hips and spine in terms of turnout and and uh, what ballet had done to my body and so I I had a lot to color (laughs) and at a certain point I looked up and Katrina was over there with her life-size tracing of herself and it was just blank. And she was kind of sitting there just serenely um, being wise and and kind of soaking in her thoughts or whatever, but she was not coloring at all. Nothing was colored. And I remember kind of crawling over to her and asking her what was going on and if she was okay. And she was like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm okay. I just uh, don't want to color problems on my body. I don't want to give life to them in that way and identify them in that way. And I'm telling you, it just washed all over me and I understood immediately and I realized what a flawed assignment it was and one that cemented those problems and and bad parts in our consciousness instead of giving space and air and light to, um, to places in our body that potentially needed extra love and extra care and nourishment. And um, what we were being asked to do is push those bad things even deeper and make those, those branding places even more um, prominent. And Katrina really taught me something significant that day. And it was the day I stopped saying, I have a bad ankle, I have a bad knee. And later, uh, much later when I would become a yoga teacher, I would remember that day and I would try to encourage my clients to shift that language too. And they would come into my, my studio and they would say, well, I signed up for a private from you because I have a bad hip or whatever. I would kind of gently nudge them towards something more positive and something that had a little more air in it so that their body could actually respond and heal uh, with new language. And then their body history and legacy would carry forward in a more hopeful way. These stories that we hold as gospel, the ones that we've been telling since our beginning, and the ones that that we believe as fact, especially the ones that tell of our brokenness, we can rewrite those too. And remember that our people are watching, that our children and our clients and our partners and our, our parents, they retell the stories that you tell about yourself, and we teach them how to refer to us. We teach them how to name us. In order to identify these stories, we have to look at our actual inner dialogue, how we speak to ourselves on the inside, and the parts, the parts of us that nobody else gets to hear, uh, but still it makes an imprint. What do you say to yourself in the dark when nobody else can hear you? Is it kind? Is it helpful? And also consider the apologetic or dismissive language that you that you diminish yourself out loud with. Oh, I can't wear the white pants, you know, because of my thighs. And oh I have to wear makeup, you know, because of my skin. And I can't contribute to that conversation because I'm not smart enough, or I don't know anything about politics, or I don't belong in, in that circle of intellect. Um, They wouldn't want to hear from me because my ideas are too simple. Like that. And things and stories that feel doomed or kind of too far gone or already cemented, those can be rewritten too because you are the author and you hold the pen. We are at a very important threshold right now. We are primed for rewriting the narrative and becoming a true scribe of our lives. Metaphorically, the waves have cleaned the beach. And we're ready both individually and collectively for something new. And we can write with a fresh heart and choose our path forward unapologetically. That That is ours right now. And a new generation could be carved out right now out of this pandemic, out of the time that Mother Earth has rested and replenished and rewritten her story. And so I ask you this, and I ask myself this too, what are we going to write to bring forward, to repeat? And what are we going to compost and not move forward in our legacy? What do you want the stories to be, the ones that that you tell? And can you take up the pen and Begin to really claim authorship of your own life. It's the task that we're all called to do to become the scribe. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you're enjoying listening to this podcast as much as I am enjoying creating it. Um, I have a couple of things I want to share with you. Uh, if you are enjoying listening and you do um, love the episodes, I would love for you to rate it and review it and even share it if you feel inclined. Um, also, I started a Patreon page, and um, the minimum ask is just $5 a month, and and it's totally optional. There's zero pressure to do this. But if you do become a patron, then you get... Um, four bonus episodes a month, one per week that are the practice and embodiment episodes to support um, a lot of these stories that I'm telling you. So you get bonus content and it's a really great way to support me and the continuation of this work um, to ensure that I get to keep doing it. Information for that can be found on the show notes. Um, Thank you again for all of your support and for your listening and I hope you have a beautiful day.